Welcome to Place Your Time Now. I'm Pam McKinnon. This is season one, episode one, with writers Lydia Diamond and Craig Lucas. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on Tuesday, July 9th, 2020. We were a few months into the pandemic and the theater industry-wide shutdown. As a result, ACD had canceled its season and had just let go a large number of staff. In the immediate weeks prior, ACT had been opening our Strand Theater lobby as a respite station to protesters speaking out against police brutality and anti-Black racism. I was personally starting to prep for a production of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale that would have been on the Geary stage. But you know, we could do, we could just make Craig say fabulous things about me again for five minutes, just, you know, because it'll make my day. Hi, I'm Pam McKinnon, ACT's Artistic Director, and this is our podcast, Place Here, Time Now, and I'm really excited to have Lydia Diamond and Craig Lucas. Lydia R. Diamond is an award-winning playwright whose works include Tony Stone, Smart People, Stick Fly, which was on Broadway, Voyeurs de Venus, Harriet Jacobs, and The Bluest Eye. She has a lot of awards. Her most recent award is the 2020 Horton Foote Playwriting Award. She also sits on the Dramatist Guild Legal Defense Fund Board, and she's on the faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And we just gave Lydia an honorary MFA from ACT. Craig Lucas is a writer and a director. His plays include Missing Persons, Reckless, Blue Window, Prelude to a Kiss, The Dying Gall, Small Tragedy, Prayer for My Enemy, The Singing Forest, and I Was Most Alive With You. His screenplays include Longtime Companion, for which he won a Sundance Audience Award, and The Secret Lives of Dentists. His libretti include The Light in the Piazza, Two Boys, An American in Paris, and Amelie. He also has three Tony nominations. And I am so excited that Lydia and Craig, you are here, my dear friends, and we get to talk. It actually came from a conversation that you and I had, Lydia, about um, instead of a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a theater artist that I adore, to do a one-on-two conversation. And you, you suggested that. And when, when, when we were um, talking, you said, and I'd love to be in conversation with Craig Lucas. I did, because he's one of my favorite people. Aww. You know, and, and, and actually, I'd love to actually know a little more, like, why, why Craig Lucas? Oh, we've started, have we? This is it. Yes, please. Here's the way I met Craig Lucas. And tell me, Craig, if, if uh, my memory of this is wrong. I was in the rehearsal room for Stick Fly on Broadway. And um, that's a little crazy and different and um, a brand new experience that was sort of intense from the outside in. You know, I, it's, it's all geography, but still the tenor of the, of the thing changed for me on Broadway. And, I, and I was, it was very destabilizing. And one day I get this phone call and I think, Craig, do you remember? I think it was um, a message and, and I called and I was like, Craig Lucas, really? Craig, Craig Lucas? And he and you said these lovely things about stick fly. And I and I think it was more comforting than I bet you know it was. You're, Am I right about that? You know, really, it's the appropriate thing. The play 
it bowled me over in a way that almost never happens to me because you were parsing the nuances of character. And though I do find your work extremely scrupulously focused on power in a way that is refreshing, it refuses to generalize about anyone. And that is remarkable. And it requires an intelligent critical response. And I have spent my life watching unintelligent critical responses to great art. You know, generally the critical drift is fashion driven and not content driven. But I find your work entirely content driven. America is very dubious about people who choose to be artists and families and social circles, you know, if you are lucky enough to make a living at it or, or get awards or acclaim, then they all go, oh, that was smart. But, you know, most of us actually labor our whole lives with a lot of discouragement and financial ruin. And it's very, very hard to make enough money as a playwright in America. So if we're not sort of cheering each other on, I don't know who's going to do it. Absolutely. And can I ask you about that, Craig? So this thing about external affirmation and the power of the review, I didn't, the, the, the play Tony Stone that Pam directed most recently at ACT and prior at Roundabout is the first time I haven't gotten a mean New York Times review. And it's so funny, Pam, I was like, I got a good New York Times review. And my boss asked me to pull a pull quote and I started reading it. And, and actually there, there wasn't actually anything nice that was said about my writing. It was, it was actually about April's acting. And, and you were a fabulous director and even the choreographer was genius. And, but it, you would not know that I, I wrote the play and, and I had to wrestle with my ego around that. And it was easy because I love all of you and think that everything they said that was good about you was true. Oh, I don't think but, I got an adjective. I think I oh, got did a you not get an, a directed by. I think it was a directed by. by. Oh, okay. So it really was April's, April's review, which she deserved. But, but um, what I was going to say to that was the financial and career ramifications of having just had a serviceable review in the New York Times was so hugely, it was so disproportional to what happened in my career when the nasty New York Times review about Stickfly came out. Like just from a serviceable review, the, the, you know, the deal with the licensing company was better. The finances were better. People wanted me to speak about things and people wanted to listen in a different way. And I find that found that startling. And when I get discouraged about that, I'm like, well, if I can one day write a play as good as Craig's, I don't even give a shit what the reviewers say. So I, you know, Craig, did you write from a different place earlier in your career than you write from now? What I mean by that is, so when I first started writing, I, um, I, I, there wasn't Google and, you know, people who look like me aren't in the canon. And so I actually hadn't been exposed 
to playwrights who looked like me. And, um, and so I didn't have any, any voices to replicate or any, um, I see my, my theater, my playwriting students, they have to write like somebody else for a while before they find their voice. But I didn't have that, which was probably good and bad. But I also had this great moxie. I thought I was inventing a thing. I thought no one's ever put erudite Black people on stage having, you know, that, that are um, contemporary, having conversations with people of other colors that um, aren't necessarily exactly only about white people killing them and only urban, urban, or rural, rural, or historical. Uh, I, I just didn't know of Alice Childress and people like that, Audrey Kennedy. But because of that, I, um, I wrote from this place of, I know things, because um, you know everyone does when they're 24. Uh, I, I, um, I have a thing to tell the world about how racist they are and how sexist they are and how xenophobic they are. And, um, and, and, and I'm doing something, something that matters, I'm doing it. And that was an easy place to write from because <laughs> it's easy to spew anger. But as I got older and I had a son um, on the autism spectrum, which means absolutely nothing just because um, his brain is remarkable, but when he was younger, meant we were having, you know, tantrums every hour on the hour, and it was it was a thing. And um, my then husband was ill, and life got really hard and humbled me. And suddenly, I didn't know anything. I just felt like I didn't know anything. And plays started coming from a place of questioning, and I found it harder to write when I didn't know, when I felt I didn't know anything about anything, but the place got better. What you just described seems to me to be a, like a, a course in wisdom, that young people do think they're immortal and they do have the luxury of thinking simplistically. And then life comes at you. You know, I became an active alcoholic and drug addict and everybody I knew got sick and died. And so, I didn't handle that very well, and I fell apart and lost a lot of dear friends because they didn't want to be around the noxious person I became. And that caused me to begin to question how I might function in a different way in the world, and it did change my work. That process of coming up against one's own hubris and arrogance and, and assumed superiority I mean, I find one of the things that I love in, in, in your plays is that, you know, a character like Brian in Smart People, who, whose, whose scientific endeavors are questionable because he's looking for, if I understand correctly, he's looking for a biological basis for racist behavior in white people. And the Black characters in your play know enough to understand that that may actually be a way of not taking responsibility for the element of character, personal choice. If it's all biological, if we're hardwired to be racist, then that's, that's easier than, what are you gonna do to make it better as an individual? And I can only assume, Lydia, that the things that have humbled you and the things that have humbled me and made us question ourselves and made what, what has made writing harder and harder and harder and each new play is harder to write. There's no question about that, but that's as it should be. Um, you can tell 
that the winter's tale was harder to write mm -hmm. than Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Hamlet was harder to write than Two Gentlemen of Verona. It just was, you know? But you can't go on being the same person. If you, if you do, if you go on writing the same play over and over again, you're not growing at all. Mm -hmm. And Craig, is that what you meant when you said that as you progress and as you write, you know, play 17 versus play two, that it's supposed to be harder. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I mean, I can understand that it is harder, but why supposed to be well, harder? Well, because you know more and there's more that you must bring to bear. And if, you're, if your understanding of life hasn't expanded and deepened, I mean, I, I have a friend who's very elderly now, but a very accomplished writer. And I, I mentioned something about always remaining teachable. And he got very surly with me. And he, and he said, I'm not still learning. I'm not a student anymore. I'm a master. And I thought, that would not be a useful stance for me to take. I would get in trouble with that. I do need to remain teachable. I do need to have people in my life like you, Pam, and like you, Lydia, who would say to me, okay, so I read your new play, and I think there are some problematic things in it about women, Greg. Would you look at this? I, I need that. I rely on it. I was teaching last week and or the week before through arena and i referred several times to some plays and some characters as slaves um, and yeah <clears throat> and then a very smart and much younger person drew me aside and said you know when you say slave you're saying that's the person's identity whereas if you say enslaved person then something has been done to them but that is not their identity and because i live alone in the suburbs you know i don't live with a lot of intellectuals around me or even theater people around me i never know what's happening i always find things out weeks if not months later that was new information to me even though i read a great deal of criticism and political uh, texts and i was enormously grateful for it and I have since noticed, you know, Isabel Wilkerson had that amazing piece in the Sunday Times last Sunday, and she spoke a great deal about enslavement and enslaved people. And I thought, oh, well, that's why. Yeah. But I had to have it explained to me. But it is interesting because um, I was recently in a in a meeting, and there was a, a and it was about race. I'm in lot I'm on lots of committees, and you know, to eradicate racism from the American theater. Um, and it's not going so well, by, by the way. But, but I've been on a lot of committees lately where um, I'm asked to talk about uh, how, what we can do to help the American theater not be racist. And I've been in these committees and I've been on these panels and I've been at these round tables for decades. Um, and, and, and there was a point at which I was kind of the go-to person uh, one of the go-to people for those panels, because I give good panel and, um, you know, can tell the truth to power and also be kind of funny and kind of charming and then, you know, slam you. It's good drama. I'm really good at that. But I had uh, said to a couple of pe people who were leaders in the community about five years ago, I think I'm going to absent myself from this conversation because I feel as though I'm saying it very clearly 
and um, it's it, nothing's changing so much, and I'm just finding myself becoming really, really bitter. So because of that, over the course of the years, I've become um, and and peers of mine who also are often the only black person in rooms where we talk about race it is very easy to begin to believe that you're the most woke person in any given room at any given time and you know and i and you just know and and you're the voice of the people which is fair because all too often you're asked to be the voice of the people but recently i was in one of those groups and there was a newly celebrated black writer in that room with me and i said black people black people black people and what you need to understand is black people black people and if you don't understand black people black people write other black artists and he said well i respect your opinion but i um i that has not been my experience and i was like whoa <laughs> what just happened and um what you were saying about being taught about enslaved people i uh i had to be taught that too i just maybe learned it a earlier but i had to learn that too how dangerous it is when we start thinking that we know a thing and and but that's what, often what i i find in your plays it's so beautifully dramatized is the way that each and every person is blinkered if not blind to certain aspects of themselves. It's why we're a social being. We need to be told, you know, watch out, tie your shoelaces, you're gonna trip, you know? And a lot of men think, oh, well, I'm being criticized. And so, you know, they punch you rather than going, oh, they don't want me to trip. I should tie my shoelaces, you know, I was, very aware that you were trying things stylistically, linguistically, with Tony Stone that are not at all the same as what you've done before. People are telling stories in that play, in the clubhouse, in the dugout, in the bars, in the bedrooms, and the act of telling stories in a sense, becomes the play, you know, the ball that rolls out and gets picked up. Is We're picking up the ball that is given to us and what are we gonna do with it? Uh, I've never seen a character like that. Never seen that person on the stage before. And that's why I go to the theater to see that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Me too. Can I ask a selfish question? We're talking about, you know, trying to remain teachable and open. Um, I still feel that I'm a very new artistic director. I know the two of you mainly as a director in the rehearsal hall. So we have, you know, a friendship that stems from that. Do either of you have advice for me as an artistic director in this moment? And I'm asking not to ask you to solve anything but you know because i now sit in a different chair what are what are my opportunities i want craig to go first i have to think about that i would love to see 
Pam, uh, all of the not-for-profit theaters, and of course the commercial producers too, producing more plays by non-white writers. I, I've been somewhat associated, you know, with uh, a musical theater writer who has taken, it's taken 20 years for anyone to do his work. And I've watched it happen and wondered what is going on here? This is a brilliant person. And he just won the Pulitzer Prize. But what's That's sort who of I was in the room with. That's who was like, no, that's not my experience, Lydia. <laughs> He's wonderful. But you know, I've watched and wondered, why is no one doing yeah. the work? So my primarily I think the more stories that are getting told, the better. And I'm also noticing that an awful lot of teams get put together where even if the cast has a lot of um, non-white people in it, the, the table where the creatives are sitting is still predominantly, if not entirely white. And I think that's very discouraging to everybody. The other thing that I'm seeing happen is that the boards of directors of these theaters seem to have it backwards, that somehow artists are working for them. That has to change. Being on the board of directors of a theater is not about the perks you get or the power you have. It is only about enabling the art form to go forward. And if you're asking artists of color to come and appear and speak and do their work, and everyone on the board is white something is really wrong but this to me is like the big battle in america now which is we have somehow conflated democracy which is in the constitution with capitalism which is not in the constitution and i don't know where those two things got merged as a single idea but whenever anyone publicly like Arthur Miller, says maybe capitalism is not the best thing for human beings. They are systematically destroyed. And until we can tell the boards of directors, capitalism is not the reason we're here. We're not making work so we can make a lot of money. Then I think if, if we don't have that conversation and we're not willing to be told to go away, which many of us have been, then we're just going to get more productions of My Fair Lady. And maybe Stick Fly, because Stick Fly goes down with a spoonful of sugar. No, no, really though. And, and the thing about it is, I feel that all of this, you know, the, the questions of parody, in the American theater and oh, what should we do? And oh, what should we do? And do tell us what to do. It's simple. There just have to always be diverse people in the rooms that make decisions. And then it all plays out naturally because you need somebody in the room who can say what Craig just said. And I think that what's the problem with the American theater is the same problem with the country, it's racism. And I like about you, Pam, that your politic is, is very sophisticated and evolved and you're very good at hearing people, just like you asked this question. I've never had an artistic director. No, that's not true. Lately, everybody's asking that, but I don't know that they always mean it. <laughs> but 
<laughs> I feel, Pam, that you are, are genuine. When we have talked about racism in theater and when we have talked about racism in general and when we have talked about gender parity and when we've talked about it in terms of how it works with your own theater, it doesn't feel like it's about you. It doesn't feel like what you're talking about is how can I performatively be inclusive? Or how um, can I make the institution not look like it's racist? And there aren't very many people like that who have leadership of anything. It's not just about theater. But I really think that thing that Craig was talking about is why I often find myself in rehearsal rooms of plays that I've written that have long been done that I wouldn't need to be around because I know if I'm not there, the actors wouldn't have a person who looks like them on the other side of the table. And it means something, and it means something for how the art gets created. It's important artistically. And I think too often theaters, artistic directors say that it's important politically. If somebody should, oh, oh, we can't have the white person direct this play because then it will appear that we are racist. Well, it actually wouldn't appear that you were racist if 50% of your, of your um, artistic leadership was a person of color and 25 to 50% of your board were people of color. And that's the part that's frustrating. And that's the part that makes me very cynical about America, because I don't think we're going to have a program and have some Black interns come in because we're going to fertilize from the ground up. It's going to do anything. There are tons and tons of graduates from theater programs and brilliant people who've been running small theater companies. It's not even, uh, there's, I've seen artistic directors think they have to reach down to diversify. And it's ridiculous. It's fictional. So I don't feel like I'm preaching to you, but I feel like it's a good question that other people can learn from around that. But also, I have no faith because that's what people have been asking me to tell them for 30 years. To me, that says that I guess what a theater company has to do to want to be inclusive and open is actually want to. I feel like the problem with these big theaters across the country is the same problem with America, which is we stand apart from our own racism. And we think that when we do something that's to diversify, we're being altruistic. And at the core of it is, this, I think, white supremacy. I think there's a sense that I get from people that actually they do it better. And, you know, we started about, oh, now I'm going, I'm going. In general, people don't like it when a person of color does a thing that they think they do better. And you need to write like a Black person. And maybe even if it's not a great play, I feel really comfortable producing it because it, it affirms what I know. I can consume that play because it makes me feel better. And so, yes, what everything that Craig said, everything that Craig said, and I have great faith that you're doing that. But, but what I don't like, I don't like feeling fetishized. I don't feel like I want a theater company to want to commission me so that they can have a Black person. And because I'm one of five Black people, I don't like this idea that there can only be, you know, one or two of the Black women. And, you know, we're going to do a play this season, and so it will be Katori Hall or Dominique Morisot or Leah Diamond or Lynn Nottage. 
and that that makes me sound like I'm being presumptuous. I'm not saying what you know what I'm not saying. I'm I'm not I'm not elevating myself. I know exactly to say what that. you're saying. Yeah. Um, yep. But that's another thing. Uh, artistic directors need to not be lazy and actually have read some work that's written by people of color. I think the advice is for someone to mean it when they say they want to diversify. Yep. And right. and for it to just be. It's just about hiring. It's just hiring. I don't know. I don't even understand it. I don't even understand when well, I no, go. But, but I also think it is about culture change, right? You know, because you don't want to just hire and then throw people into a bad situation. No, there because there is no good situation if you're being a black person with a job in America. So I think I think I think people, the two go hand in hand. I'm saying it can't just be one thing. Yes, but I don't think that an institution needs to put all of its ducks in a row to be ready then to be able to hire the people because right. I've never worked anywhere that isn't a mess that I'm not called upon to help make not a mess. So hire me into your messy institution and stand back and actually listen to the things that I have to say. Mm -hmm. Don't explain to me that you have an initiative so that in five years, once you've taken some EDI courses, mm -hmm. you can hire some people who look like me. And that's not you, Pam. That's no, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I mean, this is actually why the podcast is called, you know, Place Here Time Now. I mean, it's we're, Do you remember right? when I was in the hospital and the marketing meeting? Oh, and Lydia. it was a Boy, room full of like what was it, thirty white people sitting around? And you know, I'm sitting at. Did I have the tube up my nose at that point? Anyway. Yeah, you were on Skype. Horrifying. Yeah, it was 30 white people in a glass tower off Times Square for one of the most wealthy not-for-profit slash commercial theaters in the country. And there wasn't a black person in the room because you weren't it in the room, obscene. you were on Skype. And, and, if and, you I, and, I, 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 and I threatened to quit if they didn't hire an outside person. Um, and we sort of took it from there. So this is a podcast called um, Place Here, Time Now. And for people who don't read plays, let alone write plays all that time, that is a little bit of an homage to a frequent, you know, sort of on the title page will be sometimes the, the tiniest or sometimes the biggest description of perhaps what the set looks like, perhaps, you know, the... The, the setting writ large um, and, you know, and perhaps, you know, some, some indication of where we are in time. I happen to have next to me August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So I just want to read like two sentences from August Wilson's kind of place here, time now, place slash time. So he has a page, about half a page entitled The Setting. And I'm just going to read a couple sentences from that. There are two playing areas, what is called the band room and the recording studio. The band room is stage left and is in the basement of the building. It is entered through a door up left. There are benches and chairs scattered about, a piano, a row of lockers, and miscellaneous paraphernalia stacked in a corner and long since forgotten. A mirror hangs on a wall with various posters, and it goes on a little bit beyond that. Then you turn the page, and this page is entitled The Play, and the first sentence is, it is early March in Chicago, 1927. And then it goes on from there. And what um, I'd love the three of us to actually do is to take 
just a moment and I'll start first and just say where each of us are. So I'm, I, I right now am in a very cluttered dining room in uh, John and my San Francisco apartment. And I am looking at a, t a dining room table that has really been ACT Command Central for the last almost four months. Um, to my right are a small stack of unread New York Times, although they have all been like taken apart. So like the business section is on top of the arts section, that kind of thing. Um, to my left are two windows. There's an exercise bike right by the window that we bought about three months ago. I feel very grateful that Denzel Washington recently tweeted, if you haven't yet used the quarantine to get in shape or write your first novel, you still have time. So that exercise <laughs> bike is there for me. Um, in front of me is a cabinet. On the top, I'm noticing is a bottle of mezcal that must be 12 years old when my sister lived in Mexico that has only this much taken out of it and a couple plants that actually need watering. Um, and the time is, right now it is 2.30 p.m. Pacific time and um, it is July 9th. Who wants to go next? The year is 2020. In the midst of the COVID outbreak, and the Black Lives Matter political uh, moment that is a movement that we hope will continue. In the living room, the living room is clearly inhabited by a person of color indicated by the photographs of, and paintings of people of color on the wall. The wall is arranged in a sort of gallery uh, arrangement, and it is clear that the person who puts the pictures on the wall has an artistic artistic eye, but not a ruler. There's a staging area in a corner of the room by built-in bookshelves that uh, a chair and a table and computer have been moved to so that the inhabitor of the house can zoom and look smart. On the floor, the floor is littered with cords, with cords and cords, spaghetti of, uh, of uh, teenagers gaming paraphernalia. It overwhelms the living room and there's a single plant on the um, fireplace mantle that is alive because it's only two weeks old and there shamefully are three artificial plants that look really real because the inhabitor of the house spent too much money on them and seen <laughs> that's the best i could do so good craig place um, okay. your time now Sure. Um, summer 2020, a writer's studio in rural upstate New York, the poorest county in New York State, a suburban tract house built in 1954, where every effort has been made to pretend that the inhabitants are members of the Bloomsbury Group. All the fabrics and colors have been chosen based on the fabrics and colors of the Bloomsbury Group in England <laughs> after the First World War. Every surface is covered with pieces of paper reflecting work that is incomplete. The bookshelves are stuffed with current novels, plays, and texts with a focus on race in America, which has come to the fore once again 
and the old man who works in this room is very grateful to have a roof over his head and a door to close and food in the pantry and intelligent friends to talk to across the country. And he is looking forward to seeing them in person so that he can hug them. Lights up. Oh, lights up. Of course. <laughs> I could have said that or slow fade up. I could have done lighting. That was have done lighting. I love the two of you so much. Thank you for spending time. Aw, uh, thank you, you Pam. Thank you so much. Hey, Lydia, if you have notes for me on that play, it would be very... I Yes, I'm going to, but I'm a sycophant and will only think that it's brilliant. And so I'll have to work really hard. I'll just tell you how it's brilliant. Okay. So that was my conversation with Lydia Diamond and Craig Lucas. Thanks so much for listening to Place Here, Time Now. 